Hi, this is Mish Hancock, and you are listening to Mishmash, a place where I get to talk to the weird, wacky, wonderful people of this world, people I adore and want to know more about. Today, my guest is Doug Lindsay, who got himself out of bed, his hospital bed, after 11 years by becoming the lead researcher on his own rare condition. After talking with dozens of experts, Doug uncovered and adapted a 1920s animal surgery into modern human surgery. It worked. Now he's a transformational thought leader who is dedicated to helping leaders and organizations make unlikely things happen. Hello, Doug. This is your second time here. It is, Mish. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. But now you're here as a TEDx Gateway Arch speaker. That's true. Which is awesomeness. Thank you. Right? Yeah. So it's been, I mean, how long has it been since you were here? At least a year and a half, right? Yeah, I think right up on two years, a little and, over two years. And so much has happened. You yeah. did a, you made a movie. I did make you know, a movie. You're one of those things people yeah. do when they feel, oh, I'll make a movie today. So t- catch yeah. us up. Tell us what's new and exciting in the world of Doug Lindsay. Well, I from the, I got to graduate school. So Hooray, congratulations. Thank you. So I have a degree in biology now, which is good. And there was one hurdle at the end that we were facing, and we and the registrar was concerned that we might not be able to get over it. There was a one-hour class called Introduction to Research for my biology major, and you know they had to get they had to approach the part department head to see if my fourteen years of working with world experts was was going to qualify. Did it, was it okay? It was okay, <laughs> but it was close. I mean, she the, one of the one of the options was well, you could take it. You could walk in May and then take it over the summer. And we were like... An hour? I know. I, I kind of have a track record of research. Yeah. A good one. I know. I, as I a matter of fact. A, yeah. It was like I worked with 35 senior faculty at 28 places, you know, like on this stuff. And it wasn't like lab. It was library research. And you're like, well, I I invented a surgery by finding <laughs> articles, you know. I mean, it was really, it was one I, of those like... I invented a surgery. Right yeah. there, I think people would be like, yeah, okay, that's good. Yeah, that a. sounds like research. Yeah, that sounds... <laughs> Did you get an A in I, your hour-long they, research They gave lab? me two hours credit for my 14 years of research. But since I only needed one, I was very grateful. Wow. You know, I mean, Interesting. That's, yeah. You had to kind of be like, come oh, uh, it was fantastic. I mean, I'm scratching I, I, my head. Yeah, I mean, it was really one of those, you know, like, yeah, it was, it was one of those moments where y- it you find the humor in it. Yes. Yeah, and then yes. you wait because you, you know, like, I could have flipped out or something, but I'm like, no, this is resolvable. We'll, we'll figure this. If out. If we can figure out all the things that led up to this moment, right? Surely we can figure this, this one hour out. is good. We yeah. can do it. Oh, I love it. Well, congratulations on Thank that. You. So graduated from school gave- and made a movie. Made a movie, gave my first big speech the same week I graduated from school. Where did you give your speech? I'm not allowed to say. Oh. So it was, I was thinking. Was it a secret government organization? Yes. Okay. Seriously. I was just, <laughs> no, I was just guessing. Like oh, I was on the website. Job, I thought like, how would you, you know, you're supposed to list clients and testimonials and stuff. And I thought, I'm just going to put a black box and say like, like speeches to, you know, unnamed government linked institutions. Ooh. Because it, it sounded even more impressive than if I could name them. You're you know? like a, like, a you're like a, a secret spy guy. I was I was helping people who didn't want to be named think differently, and that's pretty cool. 
I hope it shows up in a positive way I do in too. our government. I think it will. Yeah. That would be good. So if the government starts yeah. turning around and doing things that actually make sense, I'll be like, it's because of Doug. I, well, I know who started that. That speech was two years ago, but maybe it's rambled. It's sort of filtered throughout the system there. Yeah, and that's why my mail shows ago, up on you been, time. You, and, you yeah. probably did something wrong. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, what did you tell them? <laughs> and, and I did make a movie too, yes. So I talk can, about rough cases. Well, I came up with an idea for a TV show, and I asked a friend of mine, how hard is it to pitch a TV show? And he said, very. So I went on with my life, and a friend of ours, Angela LaRocca, yes. said, said, Hockman, we got to throw Now third. Angela yeah. Hockman, correct. Said, um, why don't you shoot a trailer as a proof of concept? And so I got a team together that involved the Dan Duffy, who's also been a guest here on the show. Yes. And... It ended up growing into a full-length feature film. So I would write scenes, and we would get access to new things, or sort of come up with challenges. And so I built the movie very differently than other scripts are built, and we filmed it, you know, in a very different way, in a modular way. So instead of sequential, not sequential, instead of consecutive days shooting, where you know you're on a set for three weeks and everyone's killing right, themselves, right. we shot, you know, here and there throughout the course of almost a year. And so when we did that, and that meant I usually only needed the actors for one day. Right. So Lola Vanella was in the movie, and I she love was there it. for in a day. Another TEDx speaker. Exactly. And so she was there for one day. And but you know, so she's so I play a lawyer who his best friend named Jordan Michaels, who's a retired NBA player. Best life in the world. Huh. He was good at basketball. <laughs> his name was Jordan. Once he got to the NBA, there was nothing he could do to succeed. Because no matter how well he did, he wasn't Michael Jordan. I gotcha. So he's 34, he's retired, he's got 60 million bucks, he feels like the biggest failure in the world. You know? And like, <laughs> you know, he's sitting there, he was on one all-star team, which actually, you know, that's pretty fantastic. Right. So, unless you're, unless everyone calls you Jordan, and then, you know. Gotcha. So he's sitting at home and moping, and my character, Max Spikeman, they're, they're drinking at a bar and commiserating about their terrible lives, because Max is a lawyer who helps rich people with nonsense, you know? And... Max is like, man, I could do a real case if I could get one. And he goes into the bathroom, and Jordan goes into the bathroom and finds out that on the internet that his socialite ex-girlfriend's dog bit her attorney's wife. The attorney dropped her as a client, is suing, and wants the dog put down as a vicious dog. Ah. So he picks up the phone, makes a call, and when he comes out of the bathroom, he goes, I got your death penalty case, buddy. So Max doesn't want to do it, but he ends up representing Kissy Swanson and her dog. The tabloids get a hold of it, nickname him the dog attorney. And when he wins, every eccentric millionaire and billionaire in the world wants him to be their attorney if they have pet-related legal issues. Oh my gosh, that's so fun. So that's the premise. And we made the film, and now we're editing and pulling it together. And we'll do film festivals, and we will start there. So... I'm going to guess there's dogs in the film. There are dogs in the film. What, was it difficult to work with? Were they trained dogs? I mean, were they like the Hollywood dogs? I picked the dogs. Okay. And they did pretty well. But it, in one scene I was filming and with, with the, the gal that plays the socialite and the dog, Abigail, is supposed to be the dog that bit everyone, you know. Ah. And the dog was fine all day until it came time to work and then you've got all these lights all these cameras all these mics all this stuff in the dog's face and it's nervous and so oh. i'm calming the dog down but then my lead actress is sitting there and she's like well now it looks like it's your dog 
And I'm like, okay, well, I have to calm my actress down while I try and calm the dog down. You know? And so it was, but then later she got to walk it when we did a scene in Clayton and they had been able to bond. So for the final scene, the dog was very much hers. So it was a good arc. You know, they had time to build a little team together. But at the moment. See, had I known I'd let you borrow my dog, Tuffy. I don't know what it is about Tuffy, and mm-hmm. I kid you not, yeah. but if there is a camera or video camera on, that dog is like, oh, hey, oh, oh, are we filming? Great. That's uh, when the sparkle I, comes. I'm telling That's when you, the- it, the, Tuffy, at one point, like in another life, starred in movies. All right. So, you know, because yeah. he's he's all about, the, he's, he's like a ham when you got the video camera on him that's fantastic yeah and they're hilarious yeah so your next rough cases so you can borrow tuffy yeah and then see the thing over the microphone here the sort of whatever when we were filming we had to put you know a big they're called a furry that you put over the microphone so wind doesn't pick it up right right and the dog one of the dogs was fine all day (laughs) until he saw it fixated on it and decided it was like a squirrel and so he was like I want to kill this thing so badly. And, you know, after like four hours of and no problem, all of a sudden it was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait, what's that? Is that like what I think it is? Because I want to chase it, but it's in the sky. And, you know, and it was like this moment you could see the wheels turning in his head. Oh, my gosh, I love it. Well, we are going to take a quick break. We will be right back with Doug Lindsay. back with Doug Lindsay. So, so yes. yay, you're yeah. going to be a TEDx speaker. I'm going to be a TEDx at speaker. Think well. At Think Well. Oh, and go think. On April 12th. Why wouldn't you, right? With exactly. your amazingness. And yeah, I know we did it on the first podcast, but yeah. let's, let's t- talk about it. Yeah. So I was a regular college student. I got sick of 21 and I spent the next 11 years homebound and bedbound. And the doctors didn't know what was going on. And they didn't know how to help me or, or what to do. My mom had, ha- had a similar condition. So she'd been sick for most of my life and they'd never been able to come up with any answers for her either. So eventually it became clear to me that if I stayed on this path of just waiting, going to doctors, specialists and asking them, they may never come up with an answer. That one of the things I point out and I'm writing in an, an article, your doctor has 1500 patients there's a chance, and, and, and for routine things, what are you going to do? I mean, it's, you know, it, it's not that hard. You know, a lot of right. people go through Target. It's not usually a calamity. You know, you, a cashier can, you know, check a lot of people out. So if you have experience with what you're dealing with, it's often not that hard to know what to do. Right. You know, but if you're a really rare patient, there's a chance that one fifteen hundredth of anyone's time isn't enough to get those answers. So I had to become the leader and the lead researcher in my case to change the equation. And really really take responsibility for your health. Yeah. So then I was able to figure out what was wrong and I was able to develop a novel treatment to sort of keep it at bay. And then when it looked like there was a chance that a surgery might be able to help me, we ran into the stumbling block that there was no surgery. And so now I'm in a bind because if I call the doctors, so the, the, there, was a, there was a theoretical surgery, right? But the doctors right. believed it was impossible. The description in writing from one of the biggest names in the field was it would be like trying to cut the peanut butter out of a peanut butter sandwich and leave the bread behind. Mm. So and he said a nearly impossible task. 
So I was in a bind. If I pick up the phone and call the surgeons and ask them for the surgery, the answer is no, because they think it's impossible. If I don't pick up the phone and call them, the answer is also Definitely no. Definitely no. Right. Yeah. So then right. what do you do? Well, I decided if I needed a surgery and there wasn't one, I would invent one. And that's what I set about to do. And I'd never done that. But I, as when I was sick, I spent as much time developing ideas that were related to living well and living a good life and being effective as I did thinking about science stuff. So I, so for every sort of scientific innovation, there are sort of ideas and breakthroughs as part of a personal philosophy of how to tackle problems that let me get these things done. It's and, amazing. And one of them was how do you measure what doing your best looks like? Because that's very vague, you know, like you, you, you're tired at the end of your workout. I guess I did good. Right. You know, right. you sort of, you can, you know, you can, you can shovel, you know, you can move bricks and find out that, you know, you could have used the, the forklift. You know, you right. move all, bought beer boxes all day and they go, you could have done a million times that if you used the forklift. Oh, so being tired doesn't mean you worked, you know, you did right, right. smart. So I developed a tool to help people understand what doing your best would look like. And I use that because for me to live without regret, I had to do everything I could to get better. And then your question is like, well, instead of just saying, well, I, I tried a lot of stuff today, at some point you need to be like, what the heck does your best look like? If I'm relying on that to live without regret so that I can be happy whether I'm sick or well and give myself the best chance to win and succeed, well, then maybe I should know what doing my best looks like. So is that what, you're, is so that what, what you teach people about. then? Yeah, so I, I run... I help people think about their problems in different ways. You know, we're calling it a transformational thought leader because the premise is I'm coming in to an organization, working with the leaders to help them see the situations they face in a new way. Then they will see opportunities that they hadn't seen before. And I'm able to do that through speeches and workshops that are tailored to the problems they're facing. Got, and got. so they're literally, you know, so when I spoke with all of the high school guidance counselors and college admissions officers in the state, I was able to talk to them about the role of hope in higher education. And that means that they could go, those college people, and represent their school in a non-comparative sense. So that if WashU builds a new swimming pool, that doesn't make SLU the loser. Your job, almost like in dating, is not to, to be better than the guy next to you. It's to be confident that you have something valuable to offer. Got and so yeah. I helped them get in touch with those sources of hope so that they, going into high school, felt less like an arms race. Where when somebody says, I like Ohio State, and you're like, oh, no, not them. They're, you know, us, <laughs> us, us. Instead of sounding desperate, right. you understand that you're a good match for lots of people. And now your job is to help people see that which is very different than trying to like, you know, corral Gather, people into your class. Your people, exactly. right, yeah, get yeah. your quotas and all this other stuff. So that's the sort of mind shift you're going to do is say, when that guy's sitting in a car, want, getting ready to walk into a high school to explain where he comes from or where she comes from, that person can get back in touch with those core ideas that weren't comparative based. Right. So, you know, and you can walk in there confident about the value your institution brings. I like that thought because you can see, you know, how people make the list, like here's yeah. the good, here's this the bad, here's like, which one, you know. Um, but I like the thought of whatever, this is what we have to offer. Mm -hmm. Does that sound like something that would work for you? Is Sounds that like a good we, match? like what you would do for sales. 
right? Yeah, and it's that's like the, a great sales technique, right? Yeah. yeah. To be confident in a non toxic competitive way you know where like it's it's fine to say like well, i think we offer unique value but i don't want to be the person that's like oh you know that has to bad mouth other people you well know? yeah i don't like that either and really when it comes down to it to me it's it's I mean, I don't worry about competition so much because why should I? I mean, yeah. I I hope that you like me and what we I do. do. <laughs> Thanks, Doug. But you know, it's 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 more about is this going to be a good relationship? Yeah. You know that that you feel that our company can help you with what you need help with, so that we can make this happen, as opposed to what does this guy do? What does that guy do? I mean, there's social media. Oh my word! It's like this huge universe, right? Yeah. So so I'm just seeing what what are you hoping to accomplish first and then let's see if we can make a good fit here yeah. but i don't you know i don't like run around looking at my competition all the time it would make me crazy first of all yeah. and and i think it would take away from original thought to be honest with you that's one of the reasons why i don't do it because yeah. then i can just keep coming up with my own stuff that i come up with in mish's head <laughs> yeah which is what which is something that you have and they don't and that's okay that they don't. They right. have something else. They probably else. do something else that's yeah. like really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But exactly. if you're a Mitch kind of person, then you should be in business with Mitch. With right. Mitch. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah not Mitch. Screw, screw Mitch. Mitch. I don't know. Yeah. Miss. Okay. I, we were talking about that the other day. All the yeah. interesting versions of my name. Well, my phone changes it to other much and to other things. Oh yeah, and, when know, I like when it, I write when I write my name <laughs> yeah. at the end, and I'll be like, talk to you later, and I says much. I'm like, oh, God. Yeah. like, and I, I want to say phone, please. Really, you I haven't know. figured this out yet. <laughs> I know. Sometimes it gets great. I used to. I would write. I would try and write Riverfront Times, and it would always change it to Yasser Arafat, and I'm like, really? Do you have any context? And this happened. Okay, so it's a couple days ago. Do you do you talk to him a lot? No, I know, and he's dead. So so now I'm in this spot where I'm trying to go to Costco, and I'm like, hey phone you know give me directions to costco manchester blah 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 1750 miles <laughs> fine give me directions to costco and then they go oh here's costco in manchester four miles i'm like yeah that's a why does that's a it good do idea. that because i've done that too where i like i'm asking it like i want to go to a specific like, place in said, st louis phone? and it'll be like oh it's gonna take you three days to get there i'm like yeah. what and then you, you ask it, fine, what's your you idea? And they default to the closest place, yeah. you know? It's so funny. It's so true. Technology. Oh, my goodness. And then I gave it the chance. Oh, fine, just give me Costco. And they're like, how about the one in Manchester? Yeah, what do you think I said? Sorry, lady, I'm on my we way to New England. We thought you Manchester, England. Yeah, I'm on my way to, I'm on my way <laughs> to New must, England. You must buy a plane a ticket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the picky blinders. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. All right, we're going to take another quick break. We will be back with Doug Lindsay and Question Time. back with Doug Lindsay. Okay, it's question time. All right. You're good at this. But these are these are these are kind of cuz these are things I really am interested in. So, okay. 11 years yes. that you spent with with this sickness. Yes. How did you never give up? I mean, that's a long time, Doug. How did you just keep going? I'm going to figure this out. So, I think they describe war, you know, like going to the dentist where it's 99% boredom and 1% terrifying, you know, something or other. And maybe it's split 90-10. Okay. 
you can give up, you can quit all the time. You just can't quit when it matters and you just have to start again. So you can throw up your hands and be like, I'm done with this. Right. And then go back at it the next day and do your best. But the thing you need to recognize in life are those moments where you can't quit. Yeah. Where we're recording live. If I walk out of here, it's not leaving dinner five minutes early to make a phone call. There's an empty microphone and dead air. Like, you know, that's you create a problem. Right. So you have to recognize when pivotal moments are. And then you have to make sure you're there for those and for real. And that's, so those are the things, you know, you can, but that's, that's really a huge part of life when, if you want to get results is recognizing the times when you don't get to quit at all. Right. And that's, I love it. Yeah. Because some people, I think they're afraid of success and they quit at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, no, this is not the time to quit. Not the time to quit. This is the time to really get rocking on this. Yeah. yeah I love it. And I agree a hundred percent. And for me, like. I'm a counter. I'm a better counter puncher. Like the first thing I do, if we're like, "Oh, how are we going to get out of here? The doors are locked," and I'm like, "Well, why don't we?" Blah, and that won't work because. And then some people quit. Like, "Oh, well, you know." Then what if we? Then what if we? Then what if we? Right. So I'm 24 years old in a reclining wheelchair, giving a presentation at an international medical conference where I'm outlining a proposed treatment for my own disorder, and I'm suggesting a drug that is contraindicated, meaning don't take it if you have these kind of problems. Gotcha. I think there's evidence to suggest some people could and should take it. So one of the laboratory heads from the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, was moderating, and he introduces me, and he gives me the mic. And when I finish, he literally goes, well, I don't think that'll work because of blah, blah, blah. Thanks, dude. And instead of being mad, it was like, now it was time to interact. So I took the microphone back, and I went, well, you have to consider the blah, 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 blah. We went back and forth, because that's where, like... The idea was strong, and and I'm ready to go. So that's where I took something that could have been deflating and turned it into a moment where people were treating me like a real scientist instead of a token in a wheelchair or something. It was time to go to work. I love it. And so it's not the funnest attitude, but there is part of me that believes that I don't believe something's mine until somebody tries to take it away. Ooh, I get, you know, when you start getting easy yeses because you invented a surgery and everyone seems to be fine with you showing up four states away and it's going to work. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and right. you're like, man, these sound like hollow <laughs> yeses. Like, I feel like y'all going to wake up one day and be like, we're doing what? Whatever. Wait, who did I don't know. He did a talk. He came up with, yeah. And then you're, then the battle's going to be on because somebody's going to go, no, 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 no. So, like, I think so that's So you get important. to prove a lot more about your knowledge, too, when somebody questions it, right? If you take it as an earnest question right. instead of the end of a conversation. I mean, they go, well, what about the, you know, if you want to, yeah, if you want right. to change the speed limits and they go, what about the environment? If you have an answer, that's yeah. then it's not the end of the conversation. Or you can say, I'll look into that and go get an answer. Exactly. So one of the tricks that I do is take people's rude questions as an opportunity. So I'll give a speech, and the first thing they'll say to me every every time is like, how'd you pay for all this? (laughs) And I say, thank you for asking that, because it gives me an opportunity to give you guys an insight and a a very important moment. If you're ever in public and people ask you about your finances, you say, I'm sorry, I don't talk about my finances in public. And then you don't. I love it. I mean, like, it's instead of being like, none of your business, or, you know, like, I don't talk about money, or, you know, like, I don't know, or, you know, I robbed the (laughs) bank, or, you know, like, like, you know, it's like, 
Instead of t- give it, make it a teaching moment. Help right. somebody understand when if they ever end up here, and somebody asks them, like, you know, do you beat your wife? You know, like you need to walk away from certain questions. But instead of like just fumbling, be honest. Yeah, I don't answer questions like that in public. And then, I love it. Yeah. Anyway, you're awesome. Okay. Um, I, let's talk about your movie. Yes. Was there okay. something that surprised you the most about making it? Like something you just didn't see coming. Other than the dog wanting the fuzzy yeah. <laughs> microphone. I mean, it was it was all like that. I, none of these people had ever been on a film set before. Okay. And so now you're dealing with people. And then you would have people who were very helpful. One gal was my co-narrator, right? So she's you. She's you, This is the role we're playing. She's a right. journalist interviewing me. And her husband was like... You have a lot. Of, you have a lot of words to say, and she's like, "Yeah, I guess I do." And he's like, "Well, I guess you guys got to rehearse a bunch." No, we didn't get to rehearse at all. Well, you did like a table read or something. No. So he's asking re- reasonable questions, right. but they're yeah. scaring her to death. I've known her almost twenty years. I I knew. I always started like me hitting the ball. So in tennis, if somebody serves it to you, you just have to hit it back. Right. So that's what I would do is I would set the scenes up so that I would speak first, so that they could respond to me. And I picked people that I knew I would be able to give what I was hoping to get. That's so cool. And it was really so that was the job was to pick people. So it's like they had to memorize their lines. They had to get a, have a like bullet points and then just kind of which would which would make it easier to act as well, right? And it, I didn't let us fall into that. These pretzels are making me thirsty. Kind of Kramer thing where you could say it a million ways because they had to hit the ball back. So if I said, "Mish, what's your problem?" You'd be like, "I don't know what." <laughs> All right, you know, right, right. The, to react to it, exactly. gotcha. I love it. So I could lead that way as a director. I'm, I was the actor, and so I sort of led as like a brother alongside someone, giving them something to send back. Awesome! Oh yeah. my gosh, how cool! Okay, so this next question is kind of a funny one, but okay, here's the thing. So when the very, I love, I love our when we met story. Yeah, I love how you know it was at TEDx and you uh-huh. were just, you were just, you were a volunteer and you were a hungry guy. I didn't I know who you were. Yeah. I knew nothing about you other than this nice volunteer yeah, needs something to eat. Going, I'm really eat. hungry. Is there food around here? You know, come yeah. on back to the green room. Yeah. So with that in mind, um, do you have a go-to meal? Is there, is there like a meal that's like, oh, oh I don't have time to eat, or I got this is my go-to meal. For when I was sick for seven years, I ate the same meal five times a day for all those years, basically. What was it? It was not that great, but it was okay. It was rice and peas and raisins and water and bratwurst. Why this interesting combination? You could make a big vat of rice and put it in the fridge. Okay. Same thing with peas. You could cook pounds of peas and put them in the fridge. You know, water, obviously, raisins. And then the bratwurst, you could freeze, and they wouldn't get freezer burned. So if you freeze hamburger after you've cooked it, yeah, it's going to turn to garbage. Right. Chicken's difficult, fish. This thing, I could take out at any time of day, throw it in the microwave, and be able to eat. And Do you eat that anymore? No. I wouldn't either. I mean, it's just because I don't want to cook them, you know, like, I, but, but I mean... I certainly appreciate that there was something that I could do. Wow, how on. interesting! Yeah, it was not great. I mean, you know, I mean, it was okay. Like right. it was all. It was. It was. It, it wasn't it kept like you going exactly. Right. But it was essential because my life wasn't about food. It was about trying to live well and get it done. Right. But but I did want to explain a little bit what I'm doing now. So that's okay, like we said. Let's talk. So DougLindsay.net is the website. Okay. That's my company website, and that's what we're do. That's what I do. I help companies get breakthroughs by helping them change the way their leaders think. 
whether it's about their culture, whether it's a specific creative challenge. They're painting a mural on Paraquad's building when you drive down 40. Yes. That came from a workshop I ran for them. Really? I was like, your place looks like an East German police station. I think a mural would really spruce it up. And they're, they they took it and ran with it, and they're, they're building this history of figures in disability rights, like Martin Luther King, but the guy we don't know about. Oh, cool. It is really neat. Cool. Are they painting it, or do they have an they artist coming in? They have an artist painting in? it, and the okay. artist works with Paraquad because, yeah. That is so cool. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Well, you know I adore you. Well, thank you. I'm I so excited. And I'm not even going to be there this time be around. In New York or yeah, I'll be in New York. I can do nice. a New York accent. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll be up there for TED Fest. But, yeah. you know, my heart will totally be with everybody there. And well, I will get you. to see your talk afterwards. So I'm yes. super excited. Thank you. Well, thank you, Doug Lindsay, for being a guest again. You're very welcome. I Mish. totally love this. Me too. You're amazing. Thank you. You too. Thank you, dearest. And for everybody out there, you've been listening to Mishmash. Go to iTunes, subscribe, and we love you. Have a good day. Bye.